Hi everyone, I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And welcome to episode 27 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. Today's case is set in Canada and focuses on Jennifer Pan, a Vietnamese Canadian woman who was in her early 20s at the time that this crime took place. A fair bit of the background information for this case has come from an article in the Toronto Life written by Karen Ho. Karen went to school with Jennifer, and so this article was very interesting as it gave a deeper insight into Jennifer's life, insight that most other sources of information didn't have. The only thing I would say is that I found it to be fairly one-sided and biased, so I will try to do my best to present this case in a fair and even way. Thank you. (laughs) You're very welcome. So, as I mentioned, the girl at the centre of today's story is Jennifer Pan. Jennifer was born to her parents, Bic and Han, two Vietnamese nationals who moved to Canada in their early adult years to start a new life there. Bic and Han married in Toronto and then moved to Scarborough to start a family. There in Scarborough, in 1986, they had their first child, Jennifer, and then, three years later, they had a son who they named Felix. Han and Bic both worked in the automotive industry, making car parts and tools. They lived fairly frugally and saved up lots of money, and by 2004, they were able to buy a large house for their family. To give credit to them, it really does seem that they worked themselves up from nothing to create a successful life for themselves and their two children. Their hard work and persistence to create a successful life was a trait they pushed onto their children from a young age. Their parenting style is what is largely referenced to as tiger parenting. Whenever you read anything about this case, you will read that Han and Bic are always described as tiger parents. So Sal, I know that we learn about uh, tiger parents in either, I think, college or school. I think it might have been sociology, I can't remember. But do you remember that we did learn about tiger parents? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big, um, I'd say it is partly a phenomenon, but it is also a bit of a racial stereotype, I think. Oh, okay. That's quite interesting. I kind of understand what you mean about it being a racial stereotype, but I actually do think that the uh, concept of it does actually hold some weight, especially sort of in Asian countries. So... um, I tried to like Google and find out where this phrase came from. So the phrase tiger mom or the phrase tiger parents. Um, And as far as I can tell, it was coined by a Yale law professor named Amy Chua. She wrote a book titled Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. And in that book, she describes her Chinese heritage and the way her heritage shaped her as a mother when she had children. As such, she says that she is an incredibly strict parent. She said that she didn't let her children watch TV or see their friends, and she did say that she punished them if they got a grade lower than an A. She claims that it's very common in Asian families, and to be honest, I do actually agree to some extent. I think, although it's very pronounced and talked about a lot in East Asian families, such as Chinese or Vietnamese families, I think it's also very prevalent in South Asia too. I mean, growing up, my dad, who, uh, for those of you who don't know, which will be like all of you, but my dad's Pakistani. And growing up, my sister and I were under a huge amount of pressure to achieve A's, learn instruments, uh, be basically successful in everything that we did. And, you know, like I used to think it was totally normal to come home from school and practice long division and other mathematical equations until dinner time. (laughs) And I think it was only when I turned like 13 or 14, one of my friends came over and my dad made them do maths too after school and they started crying. And at that moment, I was like, oh, okay, so this isn't normal. I didn't realize (laughs) that other kids didn't do things like that. So this pressure that was surmounting on top of Jennifer was something that she was feeling very deeply. Her parents had incredibly high expectations of her and her brother Felix. They said that they wanted their children to work as hard as they had to work to establish their life in Canada. But I do think it was more than that. I do think it was more deep-rooted and cultural. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, 
um, is uh, very similar as well to like the differences in their schooling approaches too. So schools there, I remember watching a program uh, where they did like a UK and Chinese teacher swap and the Chinese teachers definitely over there, it's much more common that they'll just sort of dictate uh, notes and the children will sit there and write them out and they have a lot of kind of structured exercise such to start the day so yeah I think it's definitely sort of entwined within the culture and society for sure. Absolutely and what this teaching style does is put a huge amount of pressure on the shoulders of these very young children um, I mean by way of example at just four years old Bic and Han had enrolled Jennifer into piano classes figure skating flute lessons um, as well as academic activities as well And with regards to her figure skating, they pushed her so, so hard and they really expected her to compete at a national level. So from such a young age, she was gearing up really to compete at a national level. Um, She actually even had high hopes of representing Canada in the 2010 Winter Olympics. But unfortunately, she tore a ligament in her knee and this squashed those dreams. Was this when she was four? No. (laughs) She was born in 1986, Sally. Benjamin Button. Um, (laughs) um, but she started when she was four and then obviously she worked her way up Um, so the pressure placed on Jennifer was getting more and more intense she would often go to school go to ice skating practice not be home until gone 10pm and then have to stay up until the early hours of the morning finishing her homework before going to bed for a few hours only to wake up and do it all again the next day unfortunately due to the pressure she was under Jennifer began to self-harm When she was just 13 years old, the pressure for her to graduate her year as top of her class was immense. She had worked so hard, spent so many hours awake at night studying in order to be top of her class, a status that she was certain would validate all her hard work. Unfortunately, to the horror of both herself and her parents, Jennifer was not awarded valid Victorian. In her eyes, her hard work had been for nothing. Despite this obvious blow to her mental health and self-esteem, Jennifer didn't let this face her. She had lots of friends in school and was quite popular, something that was hard to maintain considering she spent most of her time outside of school hours doing work or practising the piano or flute, as well as her other hobbies. Some reports state that Jennifer's happy exterior was just a facade and that deep down she was struggling with her self-worth and constantly doubting herself. To me, that's really not hard to believe. It's really hard being a teenager. Life feels like it's coming at you so fast and people can be so mean at that age. Adding to that, the pressure she was under from her parents, it's not at all hard to imagine that every time she didn't get the perfect grade or didn't come first in a competition, she would feel the intense pressure that her parents were placing on her. As Jennifer got older, her grades got lower, whereas before she was top of her class almost every year. By the time she was about 15, she was averaging about 70% in her exams. These are still amazing results, of course, but they were not good enough for her or for her parents. Due to her dropping grades, her parents started watching her even more attentively. They stopped her seeing her friends or going to social events, and they absolutely forbid her from having a boyfriend. By the time Jennifer had hit her late teens and early adulthood, she had never really experienced the glory that is having friends and socialising outside of school or college. She had never been drunk or gone clubbing or gone on a girl's holiday of any kind or any kind of holiday without her family being there. She had lost a lot of friends along the years because her parents had been too strict and her classmates had found it overbearing. As is not uncommon in situations like this, Jennifer hit a point where she started to rebel against her parents' wishes. During a band trip in 2003, she met a boy named Daniel Wong, and the pair started dating. 
Daniel seemed to have a good head on his shoulders. However, he too was feeling the pressure from his parents and he'd started to rebel even more than Jennifer was. Daniel had started dealing drugs and he was charged with trafficking drugs after police officers found half a pound of marijuana in his car. As a result, his parents made him transfer schools and therefore he was no longer at the school that he was at with Jennifer. Jennifer's grades started slipping even more. Not horrendously, but enough for her to be getting consistent B's and C's, something that would never have been acceptable to her parents. Therefore, she started frequently forging her report cards and her exam results, and as such, her parents believed that she was still achieving straight A's. This little plan of Jennifer's worked pretty seamlessly, until she failed her calculus exam. This failure meant that she was unable to go to the university of her choice, and that she'd have to retake the exam. Because of this retake, it meant that she would not be able to graduate with the rest of her year group, and this, of course, was something that Jennifer could not hide from her parents. Determined not to be caught out, however, she told her parents that she'd changed her university plans and that she actually wanted to undertake a science degree instead, so she could then transfer over and major in pharmacology. This lie actually worked and kept her parents' prying eyes at bay. Jennifer's lies at this point started to spiral out of control. Her dad was so proud of her for choosing to do a pharmacology program and for undertaking such an intense degree that he pulled together some of his savings and bought Jennifer a laptop. Jennifer forged some documents to make it look like she'd been awarded a scholarship for half of her tuition and doctored another document to make it look like the rest of her tuition was coming from a loan. Every day, Jennifer would pack up her books and laptop and take the bus into town. Her parents assumed she was attending lectures and tutorials, but instead she would go and sit in the local library and find books on scientific topics and then write up notes to show her parents when she got home. What? This little facade was actually working, and it was really at this point that Bick and Han relinquished some of their control over Jennifer. They trusted her and were so proud of how much they thought she had achieved. They stopped interfering in her studies as much and didn't question or stop her when she took on some part-time work at a pizza restaurant or when she took up teaching piano lessons. They assumed she was just working hard alongside her studies, but of course she wasn't studying at all. She wasn't just lying to her parents, she was lying to her friends as well. I really can't tell why, but she even started slagging off her parents even more and making out that they were getting even more overbearing, whereas in reality they were finally backing off and allowing her to live her life. She told her friends that her dad had hired a private investigator to follow her and make sure she was attending classes. This series of lies went on for two entire years. At this point, her father asked her if she was still planning to swap universities to major in the pharma programme she had mentioned before. Jennifer said yes and asked her parents if it would be okay for her to move in with one of her friends for a few nights each week to shorten her commute. Although her father Han was a bit anxious about this, her mother Bick sympathised and convinced Han that it would be beneficial for Jennifer to have less of a commute so she could spend more time studying and her father eventually agreed to this. Therefore, each week, Jennifer packed up her bags, pretended to go to her friend's house closer to the campus she said she was studying on, and instead went to her boyfriend Daniel's house to stay with him. Daniel was actually studying at the University of York, but he was living with his parents still, and so Jennifer had to lie to them as well and say that her parents were fine with her spending three nights a week staying with her boyfriend. This facade lasted another two years, and so, after the fourth year of lies rolled around, Jennifer had to graduate from her fake university. Jennifer and her boyfriend Daniel paid someone online to create a fake university's transcript for her, full of A grades. 
Jennifer told her parents that she was only allowed one guest to attend the graduation ceremony. She told her parents that she didn't want either of them to feel left out, and so she said she would instead give that ticket to a friend. God, this must have been hugely stressful for her. Yeah, so I do think that it sounds really stressful as well, but then part of me just thinks that she's lying so easily and so seamlessly that it's almost as if this has just become a part of her life now, you know? She's just so easily giving out these half-truths all the time. I can't tell if she's lying because she feels she needs to or just because she's used to it. Yeah, absolutely, and she must feel reasonably trapped, to be honest, because even though on the outside it may look quite easy to us, really, she is almost not beyond the point of no return, but she's incredibly entrenched in this web of lies that she's created. And I mean, it must have had some toll on her mental health. Yeah, I don't doubt that for a second. I think it definitely had a huge toll on her mental health. I think, you know, for her whole entire life, she'd really felt this pressure. Um, But I mean, at this point, her lies and manipulation they'd completely spiralled out of control. I mean, I don't know what she kind of thought she was going to do next, considering she'd successfully convinced her parents that she had this insane degree. Where do you go from that in terms of, you know, your career path, that kind of thing? How do you live your life from that point? I think she felt really trapped. um, And I think it was while she was at fake university, she'd told her parents that she'd been volunteering at a science lab that tested blood. So during kind of this in-between period where she was trying to work out what she was going to do post fake graduation, she told her parents that she was going to be spending more hours working at the lab while she found herself a more secure job. Lies, of course, can only last so long. And Han had started to get suspicious of his daughter especially when she started consistently spending Friday nights and Saturday nights out of the house and claimed that she had been at the lab. He soon realised that neither he or Bic ever seemed to wash any uniform for her job. He also snooped in her bedroom and couldn't find any evidence that suggested she had this job at the lab. To confirm his suspicions, he told Jennifer that the next day he would drop her at work instead of her having to get public transport. She obviously refused, but he insisted – As soon as they pulled up outside the lab where Jennifer had said she'd worked, she quickly opened the door and sprinted towards the lab doors without even saying goodbye. Han ordered that Bic follow her, and so Bic got out of the car and started walking after Jennifer. When she realised that her mum was following her, she ran and hid in the waiting room for hours until she was certain her parents had gone. Of course, her parents were confused and wanted to speak to Jennifer, however she didn't end up going home that night. Therefore, in the early hours of the next morning, they rang the friend that Jennifer had said that she'd been living with, and that friend, confused because it was so early, accidentally let slip that Jennifer had never been there. So when I was reading that, I was thinking, I never had that issue with you, did I, (laughs) Sal? Every time my parents rang, you'd be like, oh, Nad's in the shower, Nad's out with the dog, she can't come to the phone right now. (laughs) Uh, So when Jennifer eventually returned home, her parents confronted her. At this point, Jennifer admitted that she wasn't working at the lab and that she hadn't transferred universities to undertake the pharma programme. She also admitted to them that she had a boyfriend named Daniel and that for the past few years she had been living with him for most of the week. What she didn't tell her parents was that she hadn't even gone to that first university to study sciences and she certainly didn't tell them that she hadn't even graduated high school because she had never retaken that calculus exam that she'd failed. Despite only knowing half the truth, her parents were insanely furious. I can't even imagine how they would have reacted had they really known the length that Jennifer had taken her lies. Initially, Han ordered Jennifer to leave the house and never come back, but her mother wept and begged Han to let her stay. They took away her phone and laptop and grounded her for two weeks. They also forbid her from ever seeing Daniel. They made her quit her job and only allowed her to teach piano to students. 
They even put a tracker on her car to make sure they knew where she was at all times. Whilst Han had reverted back into his strict parenting, Bic was slightly more understanding. She showed Jennifer where Han had hidden her phone so that at night time she could sneak out and get it so she could text and ring Daniel. However, for all intents and purposes, her parents had put her under house arrest. Just for reference, how old is she at this point? Mm, early 20s, maybe 22-ish, I would think. Um, but yeah, early 20s. So that's what I was thinking. Whilst financially it might not be viable, she is actually of the age where legally she is independent of her parents. She is, yeah, and I don't really understand it either. And even at this point, you know, they've told her to get out. So really, that's almost like a get out of jail free card, isn't it? Because they've told her to leave. So then she could just pack her bags, go live with Daniel, start living her life properly for herself without all these lies and all this stuff going on in the background. That, in in my opinion, was would be the best time to leave and just get up and go. Um, Because essentially you're not making that decision, you know, like her parents would have made it for her. But I don't know, maybe it's more deep-rooted and cultural. Um, Maybe it is the aspect of family um, and wanting to be around your family and not wanting to bring shame to the family name, that kind of thing. I'm I'm not really sure. Yeah, I think family is very important and she probably does have a slightly kind of entrenched respect slash maybe slight fear of her parents. But also I think she was probably quite frightened to go or where she was going to go i mean for all intents and purposes she has no qualifications yes she's got a couple of part-time jobs but and whilst for lots of people who have no desire to go to university and they wouldn't find that very overwhelming actually if you'd grown up your whole life thinking do you know what um it's my destiny to go to university i'll have a big job i'm going to be top of my class to for someone who's grown up expecting all of that suddenly not having any of those things probably feels a lot more overwhelming than it would to someone who yeah never had any desire to go and study and and live that life yeah i kind of get what you mean but then i just think like well in this instance then would you not just do it properly this time do you know what i mean would you not just start again and be like right this time i'm going to go back going to go get an actual degree maybe not the pharma degree maybe not sciences but get some kind of degree so that I can make a future for myself that kind of thing I don't know I just it's difficult I'm sure she's at this point very in over her head um but it's hard because she hasn't told her parents the full truth they don't know that she hasn't even got one degree you know so she's still actually living in that web of lies yeah and what you have to remember is that obviously um at almost any point in our lives we can get um a completely government funded pathway into university but actually there she would be much more heavily reliant on scholarships Mm. and probably quite a lot of parental financial backing oh okay yeah I hadn't thought of that at all that's a really good point actually so I guess she does need to get herself out of this web of lies to admit to her parents so that she might you know be able to use them for some financial aid or financial support that's actually a really interesting point I hadn't thought of it like that so that was really narrow-minded of me but yeah okay that's a good point point. Um, maybe that is why she's kind of stuck um, in this web of lies still so during my research at this point in the story most of the reports do say you know well her parents are acting really strict again and they're putting all this pressure on her again blah 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 And I'm not sure if I'm in the minority here with this viewpoint, but I do think actually that the way her parents reacted and the whole shutting her life down type thing, stopping her going out and yeah, essentially putting her under house arrest. I do think that's actually fair enough because in their eyes, they don't know the whole truth. At this point, they're probably thinking, 
our daughter was really good. She got amazing high school grades, went to a great uni and got good grades in her sciences for her first degree. But as soon as we let her have a bit more freedom, as soon as we let her out and started letting her stay at her friend's house, she went off the rails. She lied to us. She, she didn't transfer uni. So she started living with her boyfriend, all of that. They think this happened after they stopped being so strict. So really, Jennifer has done herself no favours by only telling her parents half the truth because in their eyes, their previous stern and strict approach to raising her did work. Do you know what I mean? Like as soon as they think they let her have more freedom, they think at that point that's when everything started going downhill when she moved in with her boyfriend and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And she hasn't made good choices to this point without them. So yeah, of course, I think out of probably a desire for her to get her life back on track and do well and go on to fulfil the potential they think that she has and they've worked so hard for her to have, yeah, I can imagine that they would really revert back to a very, very strict way of parenting. And actually, like we've sort of spoken about on some level to us from the outside, it seems like she's made a conscious choice to stay and abide by those rules. Definitely. And this kind of conscious choice that she'd made to stay was something that her boyfriend Daniel was sick of. At this point, Jennifer and Daniel, they were 24 and he was really tired of their secret relationship. He couldn't understand why Jennifer still insisted that they snuck around and he just wanted a normal relationship, one where they could go out in public and see friends. He wanted Jennifer to leave her parents, but she wouldn't. He gave her an ultimatum to choose him or her parents And surprisingly, she chose her parents. Because of this, Daniel broke up with her. This obviously rocked Jennifer's world a lot. She didn't really have anyone else. Most of her friends had heard about her lies and realised that she'd been lying to them as well. And this understandably upset and confused them. Jennifer really had nobody but Daniel, and now she didn't even have him. After their breakup, Daniel started seeing another girl. Her name was Christine. Jennifer was furious and this is where we really see the escalation in her manipulation techniques and honestly her delusion. She rang Daniel one day and told him that the night before there had been a knock on her door and when she'd opened it she said that a group of masked men charged at her, knocked her over and gang raped her in the foyer of her home. She said that the next day she had then received a bullet in an envelope placed in her mailbox She told Daniel that she was convinced both of these things had been orchestrated by Christine, Daniel's new girlfriend. I mean, obviously, this entire story was a complete lie. It was was complete fiction. I just can't understand what she was trying to gain from it. I think, you know, it's an awful thing to make up. But then to suggest that Daniel's new girlfriend had orchestrated it, it's just a real new level of delusion, really, that we're seeing from Jennifer at this point. Um, Surprisingly, however... I have read a few reports that said that Daniel actually believed this and did break up with Christine as a result of this and got back with Jennifer. Although, to be honest, these reports are kind of few and far between, so I can't really confirm how true this is. When we go on to kind of see what happens in the rest of the story, however, I kind of can believe it. I can believe that they did get back together over this. In early 2010, Jennifer started to become even more unhinged. She reconnected with a boy that she'd known from school called Andrew. Reports state that Andrew had boasted to Jennifer about robbing people at knife point, although he has always denied these accusations. Jennifer, at this point, confessed to Andrew that she was having serious problems with her parents, and this was something that Andrew had also experienced. He admitted to Jennifer that he had often thought about killing his own father. This comment sparked something inside Jennifer. 
She started fantasising about what her life would be like if her father wasn't around. Her fantasies became an obsession and she started planning her father's death. Andrew introduced her to his roommate, a boy named Ricardo Duncan. Jennifer paid Ricardo $1,500 that she saved up from teaching piano and instructed Ricardo to murder her father in the car park of the place that he worked. Jennifer repeatedly rang Ricardo on the day when he said he was going to commit the crime, but he kept rejecting her calls. After a month or so, she realised that she'd been ripped off and that Ricardo wasn't going to go ahead with the plan. Miserable and defeated, Jennifer found herself reaching back out to Daniel. As I mentioned earlier, it's unclear at this point if Daniel's in a relationship with Jennifer or Christine or neither. Um, But regardless, they did rekindle either their relationship or friendship and they started talking on a regular basis. Jennifer confided in Daniel about her plan to have her father killed. Daniel was elated by this idea. After all, Jennifer's parents and their overbearing ways were the reason that Daniel had broken up with Jennifer in the first place. If they were out of the picture, the two could be together. Therefore, Daniel suggested that instead of just killing Han, Jennifer should hire someone to kill both Han and Bick. Jennifer would inherit half of their estate, and her and Daniel could live together happily ever after with a ton of money and no parents to answer to. Delighted by this idea, Jennifer agreed and the pair hatched a plan. I'm sure it's going to be flawless. (laughs) Well... This bit is so ridiculous and absurd, Um, but Daniel gave Jennifer a spare phone and SIM card and then put her in touch with someone he knew who was a contract killer. I mean, what? These are just like straight-laced individuals in their mid-twenties. How on earth do they know a contract killer? No idea. (laughs) It's just bizarre. Um, So this contract killer was called Lenford Crawford, but his friends called him Homeboy. And he told Jennifer that the going rate for a contract kill was £20,000. Although, for a friend of Daniel's, he would do it for just 10000 What? Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, to be honest, it was so funny. In one of the articles I read, it said, Jennifer was careful to use her iPhone for crime-related conversations and her Samsung for everything else. <laughs> I was like, honey, you need to be doing that shit on a brick phone. You can't be using an iPhone for crime-related activities. They literally track yeah. everything. The FBI are watching you Google what is the going rate for a contract <laughs> kill. What are you doing? <laughs> well, in early November, Jennifer's incredibly poorly thought-out hitman plot hit an unexpected bump in the road when Daniel told her that he wanted to get back with Christine. Jennifer texts Daniel stating... You feel for her what I feel for you. You need to call off Homeboy. Daniel asked her why Homeboy should be called off. Sorry, I'm literally not cool enough to be saying Homeboy. (laughs) Um, Daniel asked Jennifer why they should call off Lenford's hire kill. And he said he thought that she was doing this for herself and not for him. Jennifer explained that she did want to do it for herself, but that she wanted to do it with him. This next bit gets a bit blurry, but it seems that Daniel was maybe slightly persuaded by Jennifer, and it appears that the two rekindled their relationship again. During this time, there were many text messages sent between Jennifer and Lenford about when the quote completion time should be. Jennifer made varying excuses over the weeks as to why the suggested days would not be good days, but eventually she agreed on a date with Lenford, and the date was to be November 8th. On the evening of November 8th, Jennifer watched the TV in her bedroom whilst her father sat downstairs watching the news. Her mother was out at line dancing but returned home at about 9.30pm. Jennifer got a call from one of Lenford's friends and the pair spoke for about two minutes. 
Jennifer then went downstairs, said goodnight to her mother, and then quietly unlocked the front door. Jennifer went into the study, switched the light on, waited a few seconds, and then switched it off. This was a signal to Lenford that the door was open and they were okay to enter. At 10.05pm, Lenford and two other men, all carrying guns, walked through the unlocked front door of the Pam family home. One of the men pointed their gun at Bich, who was still downstairs, whilst another man ran upstairs to the master bedroom, pointed a gun at Han, and then walked him downstairs. The third man confronted Jennifer, supposedly loosely tied her hands up, and marched her around the house to the safe and other cubbyholes where money was kept. Bick at this point was hysterically crying and begged the men not to harm her daughter. After they were certain they had gotten all the money from within the house, one of the men led Jennifer back upstairs again and supposedly tied her hands to the banister. Lenford and the third man took Bick and Hahn into the basement. They put blankets over both their heads and then shot them both. Bick was shot three times in the head. Her death was instant. Hahn was shot once in the shoulder and once in the face. The three men then left the house. God, I didn't really think they'd go. Th- it would come mm. off and they'd actually do this. I know, it's unbelievable, to be honest, isn't it? Um, well, at this point, the men had left the house and upstairs, supposedly tied to the banister, Jennifer took her phone from her waistband of her trousers and dialed 911. Where are you, ma'am? Okay, sorry, I know that audio wasn't very good, but what I really, really wanted you all to hear was that noise in the background, that kind of groaning, that mumbling, because it was Han Pan, and he had survived. Mm. Um, So if you couldn't quite get that, she was hysterically saying that people had broken into the house, they'd stolen all their money, and that they'd shot her parents. And then you can hear Han in the background uh, coming up from the basement. Jennifer looked over the banister. She saw her father emerging, um, and that's when she screamed, Dad. Um, and then she says in Vietnamese, I'm calling 911. And then she says in English, I'm calling 911. Um, at this point, Han had gone outside. He was stumbling around the driveway, uh, absolutely covered in blood. Um, one of his neighbors actually happened to be outside, about to get into their car, and they saw Han. They were petrified and in shock. They rang 911 as well, and an ambulance quickly arrived. Han was rushed to a nearby hospital, and then shortly after this, he was airlifted to a bigger hospital called Sunnybrook. Jennifer was almost immediately taken in for questioning. She was actually interviewed three times in connection with this attack. The first interview happened almost instantly, in the early hours of the morning of November 9th. She told them that men had entered the house and had been looking for money. She said she was tied to the banister with her hands behind her back and that her parents had been marched at gunpoint into the basement where she then heard shots. She explained that once she knew the men had gone, she called the police. The police did question how she managed to reach her phone when she said that she had been tied up with her hands tied behind her. This is really the point in the interview for me where her facade slips. Um, I'm pretty sure she goes to almost say that she'd hidden her phone in her pocket, but then as she says it, she kind of realises that it would be impossible for her to be able to have reached it. So she stumbles and then she says that it was in the back of her waistband, hidden from the men. 
You can tell that the interviewing officer isn't really buying this, but he doesn't really push it much further. During this first initial interview, she's not treated as a suspect, um, although she is sworn in, which is actually something I've never seen before, but they make her swear on the Bible that she isn't going to lie, despite this being a voluntary interview. So during this interview, I would say that I felt it to be actually quite emotional and quite convincing, although I am sure that many people watching it would see right through her crocodile tears. Unfortunately, I'm very easily manipulated. Um, But I would say that she probably does maybe go into too much detail about things. And, um, you know, that's obviously something they say that liars do. They um, overshare on and use way too much detail. So, for example, she said something along the lines of, It was completely dark, apart from when the men opened the fridge to use the light, and they used that light to search for a wallet. I remember when I watched this in the interview, I remember thinking, like, would I remember that? Like, if my parents had literally just been shot, you know, my mum had been murdered and my dad was fighting for his life, um, and I, you know, I'd personally just gone through all the trauma of a break-in, would that be a normal thing to remember in such minute detail? I personally don't think so. I mean, of course, we always talk about, you know, the brain is an amazing thing, and we never know what what we would remember or how we would react in those situations um but I mean we do know that she's lying I guess we have the benefit of hindsight here I would say though for me this is the part in her interview when um it does kind of she does give away that she's lying despite the fact that I think the police also did think that she was lying at this point they didn't really have enough evidence to hold her so they let her go although they did put an undercover officer on her to trail her closely After a few days, the police brought Jennifer back in for her second interview. This one was not as friendly as the first one had been. This interview lasted about four hours, and Jennifer was asked to go into great detail about her past relationship with her parents and the pressure they had put on her, especially with regards to her relationship with Daniel. She admitted in this interview that she had broken up with Daniel because her parents had told her to stop seeing him, and she said their breakup had put her in a deep depression that had caused her to start self-harming again. She also does go into some detail about pretending to go to university and those lies that we discussed earlier. While she's speaking about all this, she seems quite calm. This changes, however, when they start questioning her about the night of the attack. She becomes more panicked and she spends a lot of time breathing very loudly and holding her hand to her chest. To be honest, I mean, this could just be anxiety and panic because she's talking about a really scary night. But obviously, like I said before, we do have the benefit of hindsight and knowing that she is actually lying um, um, and that she's scared to be caught out. Does it look like she's trying to um, behave in a way that someone who'd been a victim of a genuine attack was? Like, does it come across Mm. as though she's distressed at reliving it? Um, Or do you think it's actual panic because she knows she's lying? Uh, it's kind of hard for me to tell because obviously watching it I did know that she had done it Um, but she uses a lot of phrases that I think are quite suspicious when she kind of has her hand on her chest she always says or she keeps saying um, I'm scared I'm going to say the wrong thing I'm really scared I'm going to say the wrong thing which I think that is a suspicious thing to say I don't think that would come across as someone who um, is distressed I think that comes across as someone who is scared to um, incriminate themselves Uh, her panicked kind of exterior it could be just it could be seen as panic um with regards to you know she's obviously describing kind of the worst night of her life but I don't know I think because she's so calm when she's talking about everything in her past I think if you're 
really upset and emotional about a certain night and obviously you're in this police interview because you need to talk to them about this horrible thing that's happened you know your mum's died your dad's in critical condition in hospital I think even when you're talking about your past and you're talking about how strict your parents were I think at that point you would still show quite a lot of emotion I think you would still cry and you know even if you are saying oh they used to be really horrible to me or whatever I think you would still then feel maybe like remorse because you're saying these nasty things about them but now they're dead if, if that makes sense um so yeah, I don't know. I don't think that it could come across as her being um, genuine. I think it comes across as her kind of trying not to incriminate herself. So in the rest of this interview slash interrogation, they question how she was able to get her phone out of her waistband if her hands were tied behind her back. And they actually asked her to demonstrate this. Amazingly, she actually does manage to demonstrate how she might have done it. She sort of stands up with her hands behind her back and then reaches around with her left hand, grabs the phone that they've put in her waistband and then holds it out to her side to show how she dialed 911 and spoke to the responder. I'm not sure if this was something she practiced or if it was just kind of like dumb luck, but either way, you know, it did kind of solve that one question that they had. About three and a half hours into the interview, the detective asked her why she was not harmed, but both her parents were, and she said that it was because she had cooperated and she claimed that her parents had not. The officer made a comment here at this point and said, if you're lying, this is the most cold-blooded thing I've ever seen in my entire life. But Jennifer insisted that she wasn't lying and that she loved her parents. After this interview, the police let her go again, but they still monitored her. On November 12th, three days after the attack, Hahn woke up from the medically induced coma he'd been put in after surgery. He had a fractured eye socket and there were fragments of bullet lodged in his face that could not be safely removed. Hahn was incredibly forthcoming with the police. Despite the tremendous amount of emotional and physical pain he must have been in, he still managed to give the police a lot of detail. He stated that Jennifer hadn't been tied up at all and that when the men were walking her around the house to find money, she'd been speaking to them in a friendly manner. At this point, the police told Han not to tell Jennifer that his memory had come back and he was told that he should still act like he had amnesia, even though obviously he'd given this interview to the police. Well, that is completely stupid because up until this point, I thought they actually had tied her up and pretended to also be robbing her mm. which is completely what they should have done i mean i appreciate their intention was to kill both of the parents but it must have crossed their mind that there was a slim chance something would go wrong mm -hmm. and in that instant a hundred percent the one thing jennifer had to do here was genuinely act like she was also a victim of a crime yeah, I know. It's really difficult. I thought as well that she had been tied up. That's what I really can understand. I didn't think that she'd been tied up when she was upstairs um, because she'd obviously managed to call 911 and stuff. Um, but I did think that she was walking around being tied up as well because I don't understand then, one, why they brought her downstairs. They could have just left her upstairs. Um, I don't know if maybe they needed her to find the money. But two... This whole plan, right, is sick, it's disgusting and it is deplorable, but this action in itself makes me feel so unwell. Like, I really, really cannot believe that she is that kind of almost like sadistic, that she would happily prance around in front of her parents and show them, you know, in the last few moments of what, of their life or what she thought was going to be their life, that she would just show them that she was in on this awful plan and that she knew these men with guns. It just seems sickening because can you imagine in that instance being Han and seeing his wife get shot or hearing his wife get shot because they had um, blankets over their heads but hearing that and knowing full well that your daughter knows that you're in on this it's just oh it's disgusting it gives me chills yeah no I agree 
So, armed with this information that Han had given them from his hospital bed, the police brought Jennifer back in for a third police interrogation on November the 22nd. This lasted about five hours, and this interview would end in her arrest. The officer in charge of this interview implemented the Reed technique. To not go off on too much of a tangent, the Reed technique is an interrogation technique that involves nine steps to obtain a confession. These steps include confrontation, stopping denials, getting physically close to the suspect to get their attention, etc, etc, that kind of thing. Um, and in this instance, as is common with 80% of interrogations that use the Reed technique, or so I read, this resulted in a confession of sorts. So I won't go into excessive detail about this interview. It's much of the same that we've heard previously and it was about five hours long so none of us really have time for that. What I will say, however, is that she was a lot less convincing in this interview than she was in the other two. The officer is very pally with her, although it doesn't do much to put her at ease. After about two and a half hours into the interview, he told her that he and other experts on the case believed that she was lying and then they had software to prove that her statements were false and not accurate. This was a lie and they didn't have this software, but in Canada you are allowed to lie to suspects in order to get a confession. As part of the Reed technique, he said to her that he felt sorry for her, that she was a 24-year-old woman who was being treated like a 15-year-old girl, and that she had always been punished for doing things in her life that weren't even that bad. This actually does work and makes Jennifer open up to him. He continuously repeats words of reassurance to her, that he knows she had no choice, and that all she wanted was happiness. He then pushes her and asks her, don't you want justice for your mum? At which point Jennifer responded with, but what happens to me? This is a phrase she repeats a lot during the entire interrogation. The officer keeps saying that he can't tell her what will happen to her until she explains what happened that night. Jennifer, looking like she might just about confess, started telling the detective what happened that night. She said that she had planned to commit suicide and that this had been a plan that went wrong. She said that she had hired Lenford, aka Homeboy, to kill her because she couldn't bring herself to do it and that he'd accidentally killed her parents instead. She said that she'd hired him to kill her because her relationship with her parents was so awful and that's the reasoning she gives for why they might have accidentally killed her parents instead of her. She said his wires must have got crossed and that this professional hitman got confused over who to kill based off of Jennifer's explanation of why she wanted to die. During the investigation, she constantly referred to him as homeboy and said that she didn't know his real name. According to Jennifer, she said that she had planned to call off this hit on her life on November 8th as her relationship with her father was starting to improve, but that wires had been crossed and they hadn't realised she'd called it off. The officer knew that this was a lie, but it didn't matter. He had enough evidence to make an arrest, and so, in that interrogation room on November the 22nd, 2010, Jennifer Pan was arrested. In April 2011, David Milvaganam was arrested and several days later, Eric Carty was also arrested. These two men were identified as being the other two men who had joined Lenford Crawford, aka Homeboy, that day of the attack. Lenford himself was arrested a few weeks later in May. Daniel Wong was also arrested for his part in the crime. How did they identify these people? Um, basically by all the activity on Jennifer Pan's crime-only iPhone. Uh, so they found text messages between her and Lenford, and then on Lenford's phone they found uh, text messages um, through uh, to David and to Eric Carty. So, all four of the men and Jennifer were charged with the first-degree murder of Bick Pan, the attempted murder of Han Pan, and conspiracy to commit murder. On March 14th, 2014, almost four years after the gruesome crime was committed, the trial for all five suspects began. 
The trial lasted almost 10 months. There were hundreds of exhibits and witness testimonies. Jennifer herself was on the stand for an entire week. The prosecution read out pages of text messages sent between herself and the other men, the text that had been sent from her iPhone. Jennifer attempted to explain away the messages, but this was something she could not lie her way out of. Evidence came out about her previous plan to kill her father, the one where she'd paid that guy $1,500 and he'd taken her money and run. That guy had confirmed to the police that the part of the story was true, although he denied taking the money, merely admitting that Jennifer had attempted to pay him to kill her father, but that he'd wanted nothing to do with it. Jennifer tried to explain that she had wanted to kill her father at that point, but that she was glad the plan had fallen through and that after a few weeks her relationship with her father had gotten better. The jury didn't buy this, and Jennifer was found guilty of all charges. For her first-degree murder conviction, she got a life sentence with a minimum term of 25 years before parole, and for the attempted murder of her father, she was given another life sentence, although the judge ordered that this could be served concurrently with her murder conviction. Daniel Wong, David Mulvaganam, and Lenford Crawford all received the same guilty verdict and the same sentencing. They will all be eligible for parole in 2035, when Jennifer will be 49 years old. Eric Carty's trial was rescheduled due to his lawyer falling ill, and in 2016 he was tried and sentenced to just 18 years for conspiracy to commit murder. Bizarrely though, prior to this crime, he had been wanted in connection with the murder of one of his friends, Kirk Matthews, and had actually been on the run at the time that he killed Bick and shot Hahn. Therefore, his overall sentence was for life, but this was for the other murder. At his trial, they basically couldn't prove that he'd been in the house, and his claim was that he'd just driven the vehicle to the pan house. Either way, all this information is slightly redundant, because in April 2018, he was found dead in his prison cell, having been attacked by another inmate. During the trial, both Hahn and Felix gave witness impact statements and asked the judge to put in place a non-communication order to stop Jennifer contacting them. In Hahn's witness impact statement, he says that although people tell him he's lucky to be alive, he doesn't feel alive, he feels dead. He said that when he lost his wife, he lost his daughter too. His life has been ruined forever. He says that his injuries mean that he can no longer work and he suffers from a number of mental health issues, including anxiety and anxiety-induced insomnia. He has had to stop all the hobbies in his life that he enjoyed so much because he's in so much pain and he says that nothing can bring him joy anymore. Because the crime was committed in his home, he understandably could not stand to be there anymore, so he moved in with some other relatives. His son Felix moved away from the area to escape the stairs and to try and blend into society more. His mental health suffered an enormous amount after the murder too, and he's now battling depression. I mean, the question of course is why Jennifer did this. Some of her friends say that her parents drove her to it. I personally think that's a ridiculous thing to say, honestly. I don't know how you feel about it, Sal, but I just think her levels of manipulation and control and lying, I think they were ingrained in her from such a young age. Yeah, I mean, I think to put the blame solely at her parents' door is absolutely outrageous. I think no one in the world deserves to have their own child conspire to kill them and no man deserves to watch their wife be shot. No son deserves to lose effectively both of their parents um, based on what you said so no I think that's a ridiculous accusation I think there probably is stuff in her childhood I mean children that receive like very little physical affection and don't have like a secure attachment to their parents etc do go on to generally be slightly dysfunctional be it in like their ability to 
feel emotions and kind of just their normal childhood development like I think the early years are very very important and very formative in our personalities but that said there's hundreds and millions of people in the world probably who didn't have particularly close relationships with their parents or maybe had very pushy parents that absolutely do not go on to commit such atrocities so I think it probably comes back to you know a mix of her DNA and her upbringing but ultimately in my mind Jennifer doesn't sound like someone who was completely normally functioning and I don't mean that yeah she had like a low IQ or anything there this was someone who yes she got very caught up in a web of lies and I'm sure that meant she felt a huge amount of pressure but ultimately she was also towards the end hugely narcissistic her own needs came so above and beyond anyone else's she was incredibly manipulative and vindictive in the way even quite a few years back the way she treated Daniel like when you were speaking about uh the lies she told to get him to break up with his girlfriend etc you know that's the work of someone who really is calculating and putting huge amounts of time and thought into trying to cheat life to get what they want by doing anything other than working hard for it and who knows maybe that was a repercussion of having worked so hard her entire childhood but actually rightly or wrongly you hear this story and you think these were two parents who however they approached it ultimately probably wanted their children to work hard do well so they could live a happy life and you know, I think that's what a lot of parents do want for their kids and whether they like toe the line slightly wrong um, and actually do end up being quite pushy and controlling parents that actually the fact that even as she got older, Jennifer, yeah, it surprises me that at no point could she see maybe they were doing things in her best interest. Like when she didn't leave them, having confessed half of her lies, I kind of thought at that point, okay, maybe here's someone who wants to turn their life around and wants the structure that her parents have provided her when she was younger. And I kind of thought, okay, maybe now she's older, she realises she's had her time away doing what she wants. But actually, no, by that point, she really sounded kind of past the point of return and had actually just become a sort of really nasty person who really sounds like she had some kind of personality disorder going on that yeah her actions I think to any normal person are pretty hard to fathom yes without a doubt and actually that's kind of what I meant at the beginning when I said that uh, some articles kind of portray this in a very biased one-sided way and I wasn't at all trying to do that in this episode I wasn't trying to explain that Jennifer had a really hard tough upbringing and that was a justification for why she did what she did it wasn't at all um but her background everything that happened to her I think it is an important you know it was important to go into it to to kind of be able to have a bit of backstory to understand maybe slightly or to see you know what led her to be like this but I think you have hit the nail on the head there she had an opportunity to stop and turn this all around and maybe just suck it up for a few years kind of face the wrath of her parents you know live under house arrest or whatever you know however she described it but she could really at that point have changed her life around but she didn't she chose what she thought was the easy way out to just kill off her parents and I absolutely agree with you I don't think that is anything to do with the way that that they brought her up I think that is everything to do with what was ever happening inside her head for whatever reason she was you know be it some kind of mental or personality disorder ultimately though she was incredibly narcissistic and the fact that she thought this was the way out just kind of shows 
the levels of her manipulation, but also kind of just how lazy she was in terms of just not wanting to work hard to get what she wanted in life. Um, she wanted to, you know, take what she thought was the easy route out. So yeah, I definitely agree with you. I don't think that the way her parents treated her led her to be like this. Um, and you know, if she felt heavily pressured by them, if she felt, um, smothered by them or whatever, then she should have just worked hard and got out of there. You know, that's what normal people do. And if we just think about the fact that she had actually already moved out, she'd moved away from home, you know, she, almost like she'd done the hardest part. She, she'd gone. Why didn't she just stay out? Why didn't she just work hard at that point? Yeah, and she'd done the hardest part by moving out. I think if you were to talk typically about a hugely controlling, abusive parent-child situation, you'd have kind of thought she'd done the hardest thing by leaving the house. She lived away for most of the week. She'd broken free of it, if you will. A hundred percent, absolutely. At that point, she should have just worked hard, even if it was just at the pizza place or doing piano lessons or whatever. It didn't necessarily have to be her degree, but she could have worked hard at that point to make a life for herself, but she didn't. And I think the reason that she didn't is because she's completely narcissistic. She only cared about herself and her poor family had to face the brunt no, of it. No, absolutely. I think it's a very, very sad story. And yeah, one that you can only hope she has spent a very, very, very long time thinking about in a place that who knows maybe it was almost would have been quite freeing for her being her entire life is now out there for the world to see all of the lies all of everything and a part of me hopes that all she has left is to sit and really reflect on how she got into that place and and who knows maybe she really doesn't feel any remorse if she wouldn't be the first person to do something terrible and not feel bad about it but I slightly hope that in this case, maybe she has had time to realise quite the scale of what she got herself into and yeah, the world that she can the world that, that she convinced herself was fair and just and that actually it wasn't. There was no situation in which her parents deserved to die. Absolutely, I echo all of that. I think it's an incredibly sad case, um, especially for Han and for Felix. So yeah that is it that is the case of jennifer pan if you want to see some snippets of the interrogations and see kind of like a rundown of the story then there is a documentary type thing on youtube called jennifer's solution which i've linked below it's pretty fast-paced um and it's kind of heavily focuses on her interviews and things like that it's quite jumpy but i think if you're armed with all the information from this episode it's quite an interesting watch as always, you can let us know what you think over on Instagram or Facebook. And if you want to support the show with some of your hard-earned cash, then you can do so at Patreon slash Infraction the Pod. And if you do, thank you so, so much. We will shortly be putting some extra content over there. Um, so if that's something you want, then please go sign up. Um, please join us next week where we are going to hopefully be doing a listener suggestion if, if I can get everything in order by then. So yes, love you, bye. See you next week. Bye.